Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Monday, November 13th, 2023, the 1027th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So happy Monday, everybody. I hope you all had a good weekend. And by that, I mean, I hope that you had an opportunity to watch Showtime's The Circus. Because as I always say, there is nothing better, no better way to cap off your weekend than by watching four deranged middle-aged liberal wannabe elites change clothes and sunglasses 
and eating and drinking locations while they film a reality show to make people like them feel better about their degeneracy. Now, last night's episode of The Circus was a very special episode because they ended not only this season of The Circus, but the entire series. And I find that a bit strange, knowing that there is a presidential election coming up just next year. Around this time, one year from now, they should have the series finale as they close down the 2024 election. Why didn't they think of that? And of course they did. So why isn't it happening? Is no one watching the circus? Are we just not going to have an election or something? I'm not seeing any explanation for why the circus is leaving town. Oh man, circus puns. That is all the coverage about the final episode of the circus. All of these major political analysts and commentators, people who are on the ground, the people who are really in the mix. No one wants to see that on Showtime anymore. What gives? How can they just skip out on an election year? Well, John Heilman of The Circus said this. When we started The Circus in 2016, we thought it would be a one and done deal. Eight seasons and 130 episodes later, we're still agog that Showtime gave us the trust and support that kept us cranking on this long, strange trip and let us prove that our idea of doing a weekly, behind-the-scenes, real-time doc series on American politics wasn't as unhinged as it seemed, Heilman tells Playbook in a statement. This is from Politico. Our belief in the importance of the story we've been covering and our eagerness to keep covering it circus style hasn't changed. Oh, so they have a great idea for what they were going to do with their show. It went on for a long time. Now it's not going on anymore, even though they still want to be covering politics in the same way they have been. So what does it mean? Does the production company no longer support this viewpoint? Did Showtime no longer want them? It's hard to say. Maybe they just think that political coverage of this kind won't be needed a year from now. Now, certainly, I don't know what things are going to be like a year from now, but I can imagine quite a few absolutely possible and plausible scenarios that could make it so the general public doesn't want to hear what these idiots think about politics. Like, let's say, for instance, Trump actually does have the opportunity to present evidence of election fraud up before the nation through these trials, and all of the hosts and most of the guests on the circus have spent the last three years saying that there's no way Trump could have ever won that election, and Joe Biden really did receive 81 million real lawful American votes. What sort of person in their right mind is going to want to watch Hillary Clinton's pal Jennifer Palmieri drink an Aperol spritz at some posh Riverside eatery with the New York City skyline in the background featuring prominently one World Trade Center, which is especially notable because Across from Hillary Clinton's pal, Jennifer Palmieri, sits Mark McKinnon, a man who worked for George W. Bush. And Mark McKinnon is that gay little man who always tries to wear Yellowstone chic 
always has a little cowboy hat on, a nice little colorful Western styled sweater. He's a former Bush guy, so he has kind of that Republican seriousness, but still smart enough and socially conscious enough to get along with wannabe elite liberals. Plus, you know, they just love his fashion. Oh, that's my cowboy friend, Mark. And then you've got John Heilman, who was the author of the 2010 book Game Change and is basically just on MSNBC, on Morning Joe, all the time. In fact, most of this cast of The Circus is on Morning Joe quite a bit. But John Heilman is like the cool, bald guy of leftist politics. In The Circus, there are scenes that are set up to show him going from one place into the next, like following a linear chronology, not hours later even, just minutes later. Like, for instance, They are at this riverside eatery and then they get on a ferry back to New York City. I mean, this is a reality show. So you have to like show them having a lifestyle. Oh, this is the sort of thing that these sort of Manhattanites do. They cross the river in a ferry so they can have lunch at their favorite eatery. You know, just a few drinks in the middle of the day while we film our reality show, then get back on the ferry and go back to New York where we live because we are extraordinarily cool and wealthy. Now, normal people don't bring a bunch of pairs of sunglasses to go have lunch across the river and come back. That's usually a a one pair of sunglasses sort of adventure, but not for John Heilman, who is wearing one pair at the Riverside Eatery and another pair on the ferry. And this, my friends, is what you would call product placement. And that is me being charitable to John Heilman. We could also just call it narcissism. Like maybe John Heilman wants to show off his entire collection of expensive sunglasses. Very cool, bro. Very cool. You are on your way, John Heilman, to one day being cool as you have always wanted. The guy is 57 years old and obsessed with changing sunglasses. He also has tattoos all over his arms and hands and is a whiny, dishonest, liberal cuckold. He thinks he is making a fashion statement, but he's really just the male Jennifer Palmieri and thinks he's edgy. So last night, they ended this season, they ended the series, even though they want to continue doing circus-style coverage of politics for a major, um, used to be major, premium cable streaming service, just like all the other streaming services. But the prestige, oh, the prestige, the Showtime prestige, you know, Showtime, that network that people thought was always almost as good as HBO, except for those few seasons where AMC was even better than Showtime. But you know, Showtime, that other premium cable studio, huge. Well, not as huge anymore. It just kind of comes along with a subscription to Paramount Plus, which is already just CBS. So Showtime's like, I guess now the third brand in that streaming service. Anyway, this is not what we're here to talk about. I'm sure that these vapid status seekers can absolutely find another brand to associate with on par with what Showtime was when 
The circus started eight years ago. Very sad. They made it almost all the way through the resistance only to sputter out right before the end. I guess we can hope for their sake that Donald Trump doesn't get to expose election fraud evidence so that these propagandists don't all end up in prison someday. Or hey, maybe they're all just actors and we can say thank you, thank you, what a show, and then they will go on to lead mildly fulfilling lives, I guess. Now, I only watched The Circus because I wanted to see the bit with Steve Bannon, and I thought that Kerry Lake was supposed to be featured on the show as well. Kerry Lake had been with Steve Bannon in Las Vegas last week when the episode was filmed, and there were some clips of her speaking to the two hosts, John Heilman, the male Jennifer Palmieri, and then Tim Miller, who is the younger, gayer version of Mark McKinnon. Tim Miller is that skinny little twerp with the very long head and face and always wearing that weird puka shell necklace. Whereas Mark McKinnon worked for George W. Bush, Tim Miller actually worked for Jeb. And he was a former McCain staffer. He is a contributor to Crooked Media, which is the bunch of former Obama advisors who run Pod Save America. And Tim Miller is often on Pod Save America. He is a member of The Bulwark, which is one of those never Trump media organizations that pretends to be conservative, even though they're a little bit to the left of the Lincoln Project. It's kind of them and National Review and then David French and Jonah Goldberg's The Dispatch. They have all of those very limp-wristed, effete, conservative outlets that oppose Trump in all the same ways that the uniparty left wannabe elites oppose Trump. But while talking about John Locke and Hayek and William F. Buckley, and sometimes talking about Ronald Reagan and John McCain. So that guy and the edgy male Jennifer Palmieri sat down to interview Steve Bannon and also ended up in a filmed conversation with Kerry Lake. It looked like it was an interview setting for the show, but whatever happened, Kerry Lake's content was not included in the airing version of the circus. So I turned the thing on for Steve Bannon and Carrie Lake just to see those interactions. I always like knowing what sorts of messaging and sorts of ideas are finally worming their ways into the brains of standard issue uniparty left villagers, knowing that these people aren't these kind of far out, like extreme left, diehard, overt communists. These people don't believe they have anything in common with those people. These are the sorts of people who think they are centrists. Almost all of them went to college or spend all their time around the college educated. And all of them have very run-of-the-mill normie views. They want all of their principles, all of their positions to be the sorts of things that no one would ever argue with. And when you think about that being their actual priority for selecting political positions, what does it tell you? about how much they know about politics. What sort of person would profess very hard and fast, rigid principles, the sorts of things they would never be willing to violate, 
but never want to tell anyone why or have their views challenged. It's almost like they don't know anything and they know they don't know anything. And it turns out that's actually exactly what it's like. I have known these people my entire life. They don't want to be argued with because they can't argue. That's why they choose positions that they believe no one will ever argue with. Or at least if someone does, they can plausibly refer to that person as racist or sexist or homophobic or uneducated, etc. That's why when people are like, no, these liberals really believe these things, I say, I understand that they say they believe all these things, but the problem is they don't actually believe anything. Their beliefs are totally content free. Their beliefs are simply branding mechanisms that help make up part of their self image. Whatever knowledge they acquire to support those beliefs after forming them exists only for that reason, because they also want part of their personal brand to be very well informed about these things. But let's get into some of these clips because I think this show is just an incredible illustration of a certain liberal perspective that continues to dominate the elite cultural conversation, a conversation that wannabe elites on the uniparty right believe they have to interact with, but exists only in those really small bubbles, these very elitist circles, these people who still think because they've made a bunch of money in the last few years and that they have continued amassing power and influence that they are somehow untouchable and they seem to maintain that mindset while knowing that their show is ending, which seems to be our elites in microcosm right now. So this is the little conversation they have on the ferry as they ride back to Manhattan. John Heilman in his second pair of glasses, these ones with clear lenses. And you might be inclined to think, well, maybe these are just the glasses he uses to see on a normal basis. And hey, you might be right. But he also goes through about three pairs of those over the course of the show, too. 130 episodes. We have covered a lot of different stories, but like. Biggest story is the rise of Trump, the implications of that, and then the counterforce to try to stop Trump. The first dramatic evidence we had of that was Women's March. And I remember thinking, does this sort of outrage have staying power? And ever since that moment, Democrats have turned out in record numbers. And then there's just the tone and tenor of our politics, which has been like tribalism on steroids. It's not just disagreeing with someone. Now they're the enemy. And now we're heading into 2024. Like we're standing on the precipice of it. Going to be better or going to be worse? The evidence isn't good. I mean, you look on the Republican side, the MAGA forces are ascendant. The violence and the rhetoric is getting worse and worse. Yeah. There is no arc to history. Progress is not inevitable. Democracy has fought back, but whether it's going to win this ultimate war that's coming, I don't know. I got some doubts. The circus has been the story of our political life during wartime. Yeah. So they are reflecting on the last eight seasons of the circus and how their show has been right there during the rise of Trump and the coarsening of our politics. That, of course, is someone else's fault. And now they exchange pensive looks 
while wondering if it all really falls apart this time. There is no arc of history. Maybe it really is the end this time. Maybe all the constant freaking out we've done for eight years straight while our lives get continuously better, we get continually wealthier and we become continually more prominent and beloved by the only people we actually care to impress because they're the only people at this point that we even have a chance of impressing. And by the end, they decide that this is American political life during wartime. Is the circus declaring a war in America? Are these people using insurrectionist language? I don't understand it. I mean, I know for a fact that Donald Trump has called himself a wartime president. It seems that we are absolutely in an international, if not world war, at least on an informational and psychological level. And I would argue also a kinetic level. And it's been going on for a long time, but it's not the John Heilman's and Mark McKinnon's and Jennifer Palmieri's and Tim Miller's of the world who are admitting that they just feel so put upon and have to tell us all about it. It's everyone else's fault. That the politics were coarsened, most especially Donald Trump's. It wasn't John Stewart's fault that our politics got coarsened or Bill Maher's or any of these people who have made careers by making themselves seem smart about politics by calling over half the country stupid to people who want to feel smart and can't do so without thinking other people are stupid. And again, if you don't think that this is what they're going for, I can promise you that it is knowing literally thousands of people like this over the course of my life and having been one myself in many ways. Jennifer Palmieri comments about how Democrats have turned out in record numbers the whole time. Oh, yes, those 81 million real lawful American votes. And we're going to get to a little bit more of that in a few minutes. But it's amazing, isn't it, that if Democrats have continued to turn out in record numbers, why, as they admit during the episode, Joe Biden is losing in every state that mattered in 2020. He's losing nationally. John Heilman later on does a segment with James Carville where they talk about how Joe Biden needs to exit the race. He can't run for president again. Americans have already formed an image in their heads of Joe Biden being a doddering old corrupt pervert and fool. Not that they will admit most of that. They focus on the age thing, but there's no denying who Joe Biden is in the minds of the American public. Whatever sales job they did to market Joe Biden as a man of decency, a man of integrity, a moderate politician who can get things done on behalf of the American people that didn't work. All of that failed. Everybody knows the laptop is real now. Everybody knows Joe Biden is corrupt. And again, I know people will deny it. I know they'll say they know it to be true and believe it. And they will recite some lines that they read in a mainstream news article or they saw on Bill Maher or the circus or on Morning Joe. And they will understand that around a certain crowd saying all those things, repeating all those slogans does substitute as an image of knowledge and information. Other people will think, oh yeah, that person knows what's going on. They say the slogans I know to be true. 
And they just do this endlessly with one another, believing that they all have checked and that they're all understanding, generally speaking, the same important truths about America, despite the fact that absolutely none of them ever know what they're talking about or can answer any questions. And again, as we'll see later, including the question of whether or not Joe Biden received 81 million real lawful American votes. So as I said, I wanted to watch the show to see the interaction with Steve Bannon and to get an impression for myself, thinking as I often do with my liberal mindset, how would I have thought about this 10 years ago or eh, seven years ago? And how would I be taking the things I'm seeing? What message would I be getting from watching this television show very invested in the perspective of Tim Miller and John Heilman as they interview Steve Bannon. So I'm going to play a few clips from that. The whole segment is like five or six minutes long, and you can find that clip all over the internet. It's on X, formerly Twitter, and of course, my Telegram info stream, t.me slash very reasonable. So you can absolutely find it there and see it if you want. But since we're only doing audio here, it's important to understand that Heilman and Miller are making the strangest facial expressions throughout. Like they really can't believe that someone else is saying to them the things that they tell their audiences are really genuinely crazy. Someone is just calmly saying the things that they have presented as insane ideas from some fevered swamp of right-wing lunacy. And because they have to communicate to their audiences that these things they're hearing really are crazy so that they'll know how to react, they're constantly making expressions that show bewilderment or frustration. Tim Miller will look off to the side and shake his head. Gosh, I can't believe Steve Bannon is saying these things after I already gave him the things that are supposed to be said. So as a proxy, just think of your dumbest liberal friend and what facial expressions they'd be making. And you've probably got it nailed down because again, there's nothing individualistic about what they're doing. They're not having sincere individual reactions. They are using their reactions to tell a story to a third party and to the person they're communicating with. These looks are supposed to substitute for a counter argument, or they're supposed to throw someone off his game or get someone to stop talking and say, well, what are you giving me these looks for? So that that gives them the opportunity and invitation to go on a tirade about how crazy you are. But here we are, Steve Bannon. And just a heads up, if you care or you have kids in the car, there's a little swearing in this segment. Democrats are freaking out over these polls over the weekend. Uh, that put Trump up in a bunch of the battleground states. In 2016, when you were intimately involved in the campaign, Donald Trump stood up at the, at the convention and said, I am your voice. And now Trump says, I am your retribution. I am your retribution. Backward-looking, vengeful, grievance-driven. You know that the way people win in America is to talk about the future, they talk about the future. They talk about the future. I'm so fucking sick of people say elections about the future. Yeah. That is total bullshit. Are they about the voters? It's about the lived experience of the voters. Yeah. Because the lived experience of their life sucks. And the reason it sucks is a fucking unfeeling uniparty in Washington, D.C. that says 
go fuck yourself. You're nothing but serfs, and we don't give a shit about you. So you think every four years, Donald Trump they, cares they, about them? They respond to Trump, and they look back at Trump's uh, presidency and said, hey, my wages were higher, inflation was lower, we weren't at wars all over the place, maybe the guy's a jerk, but the, he's a badass, and, and the world fears him. And so, he's a badass? All he does is complain about people. A whiny, vengeful, backward-looking billionaire. That is just not like looking. Right, that's forward-looking. I want to take on the administrative state that's driven this country into the ground. He's not talking about taking on the administrative state to help people's lives. He's talking about going after the people that were mean to him. He says, oh, I'm going to have the DOJ target Bill Barr because he was mean to me. I'm going to have the DOJ target John Kelly because he turned on me. I'm going to have the DOJ target Jack that's Smith because he's coming on about. He doesn't talk about helping that's people. That's not true. That's not true. So an obviously contentious interview. And we have on full display the ridiculousness of the leftist narrative and the central narrative, and one of the major projections of the central narrative. This is a sort of verbal and rhetorical trick that is often used by members of the party of false decorum because it usually works. They have all adopted the viewpoint that one of the main purposes of humanity is progress. And it doesn't matter what that progress is, as long as you can call it progress. It's something new and new equals good. Even if the new thing that's going to happen was an old thing or something that doesn't work, as long as they can call it progress, they get to move forward because they all collectively understand that the purpose is progress. They don't have a purpose to their individual lives, of course. They're not going to go to an afterlife. They don't believe in God, generally speaking. These are people fully committed to materialism. And so they believe that the highest virtue in the material realm, essentially, is progress. So for them, it makes complete and total sense to say that everyone cares only about the future. We don't need any of this looking back on stolen elections or intelligence operations to cover up all the corruption of one of America's most prolific political criminals in Joe Biden. Why would we need to, for instance, reassess that old war in Ukraine that all of these people, of course, supported? We don't need to look back. We need to look to the future. So that's effective because it speaks to their sense of progress And it also is used to distract from anything in the past they don't want to talk about. And for people who don't have any sense of what normal Americans actually think about anything, including their own personal habits and image, these people are all ridiculous. But they actually pretend to speak on behalf of the American people when they say the American people really want to focus on the future and what the next president is going to do for them. Now, isn't it true that Republicans want to pass a national abortion ban? And just like that, they have reinserted a divisive political issue, a commonly held idea about what Republicanism is, what one of the next major issues for President Donald Trump will be. And it's easy to flip away from any of Joe Biden's mistakes, any of the election fraud, anything in the past at all. We just move toward the future. And then let's mention what a future important issue might be. And we are off to the races. They want to keep the conversation on their terms, reflecting a viewpoint that they believe will get everybody back on the same page, understanding that they're the good ones. We are focused on the future. We're focused on progress. Then Tim Miller, 
a man who looks like Beaker from the Muppets, who has an opened button down shirt, buttoned down to like his mid chest and a pearl necklace on whining and making faces while a normal man in front of him just lays down what he believes. That guy says that Donald Trump is not a badass. Donald Trump is actually a whiner and complainer who's just whining and complaining about these people he discusses from whom he plans to seek accountability in the future. That's just Trump whining and complaining about his own personal political vendettas, people who are having hard times in the economy, which, by the way, Tim Miller says at one point is a great, amazing economy. He is flourishing in it. He brags about that to Kerry Lake. But he asks whether people who are having a hard time in the economy would care about Donald Trump's quote unquote vendettas. And the answer is, of course, yes. That is like the number one thing people want from Donald Trump. They want him to go hold these people accountable. Tim Miller doesn't get it at all because they talk in these cloistered, little, enclosed, bubbled environments where they say these things back and forth to one another, and they all really believe it. They all really have taken on the idea that Donald Trump is a weak and stupid and dishonest man. They cannot ever get past that root falsehood. And this is what has them continuing to make the same mistakes for now eight and a half years running. Legitimately, like right now, we are eight years and five months since Donald Trump came down that escalator and they still think he is stupid, dishonest, an egomaniac, reckless. He's a racist. This is all about his personal wealth or his personal image. It's all so ridiculous. And they can't even consider that that might be wrong, because if that's wrong, everything else breaks down. If their character assessment about Donald Trump is wrong, the whole thing is over. There's nothing else for them there. Hey, what if Donald Trump is actually smart? How would it go if they sat with that for a few minutes? Like, no, don't argue. Just think about what it would mean if Donald Trump is actually much, much, much smarter than you. The sort of person who's smart enough to win a political campaign against one of the country's most wealthy, powerful, and well-connected political dynasty families. And not only that, he takes out all the other ones as well. Someone who's that smart, Kami, do you think you might want to consider that Donald Trump, the man who did all those things, just might be smarter than you. And maybe it's you who's wrong about these things and not everyone who thinks that Donald Trump might not be dumber than your average graduate of George Washington University like Tim Miller. By the way, a funny note from Tim Miller's Wikipedia page Miller came out as gay in 2007 while working on the McCain campaign in part to the Larry Craig scandal. That was the guy who was tapping his toe beneath the bathroom stall dividers at the Minneapolis airport. I just find it amazing that part of someone's origin story is tied to Larry Craig. But again, Tim Miller is supposed to be one of the Republicans. Uniparty left wannabe elite standard issue villagers think that Tim Miller is one of the good ones. 
This is that no labels third party thing. You know, they love Liz Cheney now. They love Mitt Romney. After just 11, 12 years ago, while he was running against Barack Obama, calling him racist and sexist and a dog on the roof of his car and he cut someone's hair at college and blah, blah, blah. They hated Mitt Romney. Now Mitt Romney is one of the good ones because Mitt Romney is never Trump in the same ways that they're never Trump, but with a little R next to his name. And pretty soon they're going to have all of the Ron DeSantis people join them as well because they fit that definition. They're never Trump the same way that the Uniparty left is never Trump, but they have little R's next to their name. They call themselves conservatives. Other people call them conservatives. So therefore, they're one of the good ones. But that Tim Miller is making all of the liberal case there. And the funny thing in that argument is that what he's saying to the person he's interviewing is, nah, it doesn't matter at all whether Tim Miller actually believes what he's saying or even that he's saying what he's saying. He is not addressing the viewpoint. He's not addressing the fact that that viewpoint now represents a majority viewpoint in America, and it has for years. And think about what we're talking about here. We're talking about representatives of this old guard, so to speak. Media elites, political elites, corporate elites, entertainment elites. The people who are at the top rungs of those industries, that part of society, and all of the people below them who are trying to climb over one another and do whatever it takes to become one of those elites. Now, as I discussed in the episode about populism a couple of weeks ago, there aren't that many of those people. In fact, there can't be that many of those people. They use all of their power, all of their expertise to convince all of the other people out there that that is the majority viewpoint, but their specific viewpoint is never the majority viewpoint. They're just trying to sell enough of their viewpoint to enough people who will then repeat it so that it looks like they have a majority. There is no way their positions could ever actually represent a majority because their positions are literally tailored to only look out for the elites who they want to become. They become elites by serving elites. So if they have cultural influence or political influence or corporate or legal influence, they're going to use that influence to become elites. Therefore, the point of absolutely everything they're doing is to further empower elites. They literally would not be in their positions otherwise. If they weren't doing that, there would be no prominence. They just tell one another that nothing Steve Bannon says is true. These people are all racist, sexist, homophobes. They're all crazy. They're all uneducated. It doesn't matter how they dismiss the viewpoint. The important thing is to make sure to dismiss the viewpoint. The viewpoint must be dismissed. The viewpoint cannot be interacted with. And so Tim Miller does not only not interact with it. He tries to talk over it to instantly negate the viewpoint for whoever's watching. Whoever's watching begins to get upset. And Tim Miller is probably experiencing those emotions, those feelings as well during the interview. 
They begin to have cognitive dissonance and get upset. We were told that no serious people believe any of these things, that this was just for the fringes. We're told that Steve Bannon is a fringe character, but he's sitting there calmly while these two enraged communists yell at him and try to speak over him. So how does it look? Tim Miller is mad that the story they have pushed on everybody for so long is being countered. And the other strange aspect here is that they are both claiming to speak on behalf of the American people. Only one of them could be reliably doing that in this interaction. And so it's really up to the viewer to think about how they feel about their lives, the economy, how the country is going in order to align with the viewpoint. Now, Tim Miller must know on some very basic level that he is not representing a widely held viewpoint among the American people, or else he'd be handling Steve Bannon much differently. When someone comes and tells me that masks worked, and at the time it was an acceptable or good idea to have kids in schools wear the masks, I don't try to shout them down to make sure that no one else will ever hear what they're saying. I laugh at them and I say things like, you don't really believe that, do you? And then I let them talk because I think it's a good thing when everybody gets to hear a viewpoint like that, one that is so bad and so dumb and so harmful and so obviously wrong to everyone at this point. I would rather take my chances that everyone else in the room is a similarly deranged communist and will laugh at me and yell at me and mock me than ever try to silence this person. Even if everyone in the room was against me, the longer I let this person talk, the less thought and information will eventually follow. They will keep repeating the slogans. I will keep laughing. They will continue to get more frustrated and want only to prove their point to me more, to shout me down, to get me to stop laughing at them. That if I just allow them to continue, they'll probably turn some of the people in that room into anti-maskers just by making them all look so bad. And this applies to all of them. Just let them talk and ask them questions. If you know what the ultimate consequences to all of their policy positions actually are, then you can just walk them through it down to those positions. I find all of that to be glorious. So I'm glad that Tim Miller does what he does. This entire episode was hopefully a bit of a wake up to their audience. They actually tried to lift up Gretchen Whitmer as some heroic character representing this new feminine wave of democratic governance. They are trying to push her right now as the counterpart to Gavin Newsom. Maybe on the same ticket, maybe it'll just be Gretchen or it'll just be Gavin. But it seems that the communists are once again just playing demographic games and they no longer even care about minorities anymore. They're just going to go for a middle-aged Sort of hip, but in a responsible way, you know, just a couple, two, three glasses of wine every night after dinner. Once you put the kids in bed and have some Instagram time to yourself, you know, that kind of politician. Just give that to everyone and then talk about how much the young people and the suburban moms really connected to the message of Gavin Newsom and Gretchen Whitmer. They cheered on Democrats taking over the legislative bodies in Virginia, although it looks like they might not be able to hold on 
to the Senate as they thought they did, because apparently the candidate they ran doesn't actually live in that district. So we will see how all that pans out. But back to the circus. Let's hear a little more from Tim Miller and John Heilman with Steve Bannon. But here's my question. You have a MAGA lawyer who likes to come on your podcast, Mike Davis. Here's what he suggested were the top priorities for Trump's attorney general. One, fire the deep state executive branch. Two, indict the whole Biden family. Three, deport 10 million people, kids in cages. That will be glorious. Four, detain people at Gitmo. Five, pardon every January 6th defendant. What do you think about that five-step plan? I think plan? it's fantastic. We All five? It. All five. We're going to start the largest deportation program in history. All 10 million must, must leave. You're saying that, that it's about people's gut feelings, it's about people's lived experiences. You think somebody that's hang struggling, on, on, you think somebody that's struggling on. right now in the economy cares about firing random deep state people, indicting well, on, Joe Biden's there's many things brother, Tim, deporting did, did people? Did I say that's all they're going to do? That's Mike Davis, who'll probably be the attorney general. Trump laughs about Nancy Pelosi's husband being assaulted. How's her husband doing, by the way? Anybody know? She has a wall around her house which obviously didn't do a very good job. Now, I have to take a quick pause there because I cannot just allow a mention of Paul Pelosi hammer time to go unnoticed. And there was some David DePop news last week as his trial commences. The Associated Press writes on Thursday, the man accused of bludgeoning former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband with a hammer was caught up in conspiracies when he broke into her San Francisco home last year, his defense attorney said as his trial opened Thursday. And there's a long article here from the AP reinforcing the central narrative about Paul Pelosi hammer time. It ends this way. San Francisco police acting Lieutenant O'Connor, who helped process the crime scene, testified she collected a sleeping bag and two backpacks from the Pelosi's patio that DePap allegedly brought with him. Items in the backpacks included a sledgehammer, zip ties, gloves, duct tape, cash, a Canadian passport, a Canadian birth certificate, men's clothes, a video game console, and two inflatable multicolor unicorn costumes. So she collected all of that from the scene, but from the patio, not actually in there with DePape, which is weird because we heard so much about the zip ties and the gloves and the duct tape and the sledgehammer. It wasn't even in the house. Gosh, what a strange, strange scenario. We also had this from NBC News. During a court break, a woman who says she's the mother of DePap's children told us she believes all the evidence against him, including the videos, are a fraud. It's David. Yes, it's David in the video. And yes, you see those things, but... I absolutely believe that this was staged later. 82-year-old Paul Pelosi lying on a floor in a pool of blood in the immediate aftermath. Video evidence is very powerful, but I think this would be an easy case to prove without a video. You have one or two officers on the scene <coughs> who witnessed this, and then you have the defendant's own statements as well as his backpack. Prosecutors say DePap's backpack contains zip ties, rope, and duct tape, among other items. The defense not challenging the who or what, but focusing on painting the why, arguing DePap believes in far-right conspiracies, including Hollywood and political elites promoting and facilitating the sexual trafficking of children. They haven't raised an insanity defense. What they're trying to do is, in a sense, use a backdoor to bring in some kind of mental insanity, that he's just crazy. <laughs> but that's not a defense unless you raise it as an insanity defense. 
DePap's main argument that his mission was to have a conversation with former Speaker Nancy Pelosi. So DePap's wife believes that the entire scene was staged and David DePap's defense attorneys are making the argument that DePape believed in all of these conspiracy theories that's supposed to substitute in for craziness. And then DePape is going to what? Get off scot-free? Now, it's hilarious that newscasters had to say what that one just did because people are beginning to understand that those aren't conspiracy theories. But that's certainly not going to be an effective defense in a real trial. And of course, How could anyone ever pretend that this is going to be a real trial? Now, again, Donald Trump knows far more about these issues than Tim Miller does. And the entire Paul Pelosi Hammer Time story has been ridiculous from the beginning. There are too many elements of that story to ever take it fully seriously. And considering Donald Trump has a wealth more information than we do about these situations and he's making fun of it, maybe he's got a point. Tim Miller can't think that this is an example of violence from the Trump side. Trump talking about prosecuting corrupt politicians is an example of violence from the Trump side. These people are caught in a total inversion within the false reality if they actually believe what they're saying. If they don't believe it, then fine. They're just saying the things that they are supposed to say. And maybe that is a proper interpretation. Maybe they realize they have to play this part and they'll get fantastically wealthy if they say these things to all of the standard issue villagers out there on the uniparty left and the uniparty right. They understand that they have a captive high net worth audience who wants to be fed this style of disinformation constantly. And they're more than happy to do it. But otherwise, they actually believe all this nonsense. They can watch the last eight years and think that Donald Trump is coursing the politics or that it's the right that has a problem with political violence. Donald Trump's rhetoric has made life uncomfortable for elites and wannabe elites. It has not caused violence. And no one is even going to listen to that claim when it's coming from people who work for the same people who organize and fund actual political violence worldwide. He said that Mark Milley should be executed. He wants to pardon these January 6th insurrectionists who beat cops with flagpoles. And then he talks about we should have the shoplifters killed, right? Is there not a pattern here that Trump's rhetoric is demonstrably getting more violent? But any president of the United States that's come from behind at 16 and then try to have his administration thwarted from day one, then win a massive win in 2020 and have it stolen from him, No one has ever been able to produce a shred of evidence that there was a stolen election in 2020. An administration, a powerful man, a billionaire with a lot of lawyers on his side who went out and adjudicated it in all kinds of venues at your urging and others and lost in every single venue with Republican judges who were often appointed by him. We'll have plenty of time for that after we win in 2024. We'll get of how it was stolen. We will hold people responsible and criminal charges against those people who stole it. Now, everything John Heilman says there is completely and totally wrong. He's even wrong about the court cases. It's absolutely not true that Trump, in quotes, has lost all of these election related cases. It's not true that no fraud has been found. It's not true that nothing has been done about it. And it's not remotely true that Trump has conceded or that the court cases are over or there's not more evidence to come out. Not that we need more evidence anyway. 
And Steve Bannon doesn't take him to task for it here. But John Heilman is also making an argument from authority. He's saying that because the courts decided a certain way, the underlying truth, the real baseline truth is that there was no fraud. Courts cannot just make legal decisions that change the real baseline evidentiary status in a real empirical world. The court decision does not change the empirical reality as we know them to exist. So you actually do have to check for yourself. Otherwise, you're just taking the court's word for it. And it's funny when people like John Heilman are encouraging everyone to take the court's word for it. Because even Trump's judges decided a certain way. So the people who think that judges could be biased based on who appoints them politically is suggesting that none of the judges are biased because they all decided against Trump, even though they didn't. John Heilman's assumption is that the people in his audience assume that they will do what advances their own personal best interests, regardless of what is right or true but not people like them. They're actually selling the viewpoint that even those corrupt Trump judges couldn't decide these cases in favor of Donald Trump because the evidence is just so overwhelming against him. Once again, completely ignoring the underlying baseline reality, which is that our elections are obviously stolen. And there is overwhelming evidence for this, which is why over two thirds of the country now thinks that cheating affected the outcome of the 2020 election. And that has been a majority viewpoint for years now. Not that any of these people factor that into their thinking. And while we're at it, let's just take a slight tangent into some of their segment with Carrie Lake that did not air on Showtime, but has been posted by Carrie Lake on her Twitter channel interview with you, I believe. All, I believe we did an interview yeah. once before at an event we held in Scottsdale. I don't, I don't believe that's true. We do, but, and, I, and I'm happy to pull that for okay, you. Go, I, I remember, go, go I remember your look, and I remember that we did let's an interview. You said, you said in the primary that you won because we what, outvoted what, what's your name real quick? John Hammond. And which, which organization? We're with the circus from Showtime. Okay. I believe I, believe, me, I, believe guys, I asked. I believe I asked the question of you about about voting machines in your in your in your race. But I just want to ask you this. So we did do an interview. Are you admitting we did an interview? I was in a gaggle. It's not really an interview. If I'm standing with 20 other reporters and I yell out a question, it's not an interview. But let's not okay. focus on that. Let's ask you a question, a substantive question about something Steve said okay. in our interview. He said that anybody in the Republican Party who doesn't accept that, who doesn't believe, he said that anybody in the Republican Party who doesn't believe that Donald Trump won the election in 2020 is no longer welcome in the party and in the movement. Is that your position? Do you believe Joe Biden won 81 million votes? I, I, you're not answering my question. Do you I'm think, asking do you, you. I'm asking no, you. I'm, you're you're not answering my question. Do you do you think that that anybody in the Republican Party? <laughs> don't lie. Yeah. Not in the Republican. I said to elected office. You can be part of the movement. And you Thank you. I think you said, We've got a fact checker over there. I think Steve, you actually said anybody who's welcome in the MAGA movement who doesn't believe Donald. You know what? Listen, listen. Is it John, Jay, or John? It's John. John. I just would like to know whether you believe whether you think that's the case or not. I like, I like people who have a grip on reality and anybody with a grip. Same. Do you know that Joe Biden ran for, for president like a million times? You're not going to answer the question, yeah. are you? No, 
Anybody? No. Yes, I agree with Steve Bannon. Anyone who thinks Joe Biden won 81 million votes does not have a it's grip on reality. That's not what I asked. What I asked was, do you believe that anyone who says that that who doesn't say that Donald Trump won the election in 2024 in 2020? Yeah. That was the question. The question wasn't 81 million votes. No, no, no. Steve, so, so the question is, I, do you agree with Steve, Steve that anyone Bannon, who doesn't agree that Steve Donald Bannon, Trump won the 2020 election? should not be part of the MAGA movement, the Republican yeah. Party, whatever. Anybody yes. who, who believes, let's look at the 2020 election. Anybody who believes Joe Biden won 81 million votes, He's I don't think that. understands what's the going on. the 81 million votes thing. The 81 million votes, no, like, you, like, so if he won but, 81... But that's what, the, won that's won what 80, the count was, right? If he right? won 80.9 million votes. Anybody was, who believes Joe Biden won 80.9 votes who won, doesn't who understand. Thinks, anyone who thinks that Joe Biden is the legitimately elected president of the United States right now doesn't belong in the Republican Party. Well... Yes? I, I believe yeah. Joe Biden's sitting in the White House. Yes. I don't know he, that he knows he's there, but uh, he's sitting yeah. in the White House. Oh, that's so and let me, so and, let me ask you. And, Jay, ask, and, Jay, Jay, and Jay, let me tell you. Not Jay, but I'm just asking the question. It is still the question I'm asking. I can't get an answer to. <laughs> is it the case that you believe that anybody who believes Joe Biden is the legitimately elected president of the United States right now should not is not welcome in the Republican Party? Any yes Republi- or no? Anybody who no, obviously any Republican who thinks Joe Biden is the president. Obviously, he's sitting in the White House. Yes, is the legitimately the elected president of the United States. Let me. I'll say it again. Oh my is, is it is yes yes. I'm hold trying my to get hands. you to answer the question. Hold no, my don't hands. do this. Let's Here's, work through you know, this. Uh, you know, man, you're not answering the question. I'm asking you a very simple, straightforward, factual question, and you don't. You're just refusing to address Jay, it. My name's not Jay. My name's not Jay. Jay. And I will say again. What I'll do you say need, again. Jay? What do you need to Jay. hear to feel okay with yeah, this? I'm, I'm done. Yeah. Okay. What I need to do is try to answer the fucking question when you're asked a direct question. Just answer the question. It's a simple, factual question. Steve asked it, answered it. You I, can't answer it. You don't I, want to answer I, it? I agree it's with... It's just such a I agree. No, it's no, like, no. answer the question. May I, without you interrupting? Yes, I love you. And you re- could actually answer the question. Did you say you amazing. love me? It would be amazing. I, I said I would love you. I would love it. Oh, I thought you said you love me. Nah, that's because you know what? You know what, John? It's John, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't hate you, and Tim, I don't hate you. But I love this country, and I know that we politically are on opposite sides, obviously. Now, that is spectacular. Kerry Lake was hilarious that entire time. Just repeatedly calling John Heilman Jay was spectacular. He's incredibly rude. He wants her to just answer the question, even though he edited the language of that question in each iteration of him asking it. He keeps trying to refine the language to get her to answer something that he can then use to flip around. Kerry Lake just hammered him with my question. Carrie Lake just adopted the proper framing of that question in how to turn it around on John Heilman. And I am happy to say that Carrie Lake is one of my followers on X, formerly Twitter. I think maybe, maybe she just might have seen that strategy work consistently and consistently put these liars and frauds on the defensive because that's what the question does. They actually have to grant the fact that the election results were reported incorrectly just to be taken seriously in that conversation. And once they've gotten to that point, all of their defenses about Joe Biden's legitimacy immediately fall away. John Heilman just edited that claim and said, oh, well, if I think it's 80.9 million. Well, yeah, John Heilman, that is actually an argument for our side and not yours. If it was off by 100,000 votes, where did those 100,000 votes come from? Did they come from a combination of swing states that would have overturned the election? And how come you didn't want anyone to check? And... If they could steal 100,000 votes, which is something we're told they could never, ever do. 
Could they potentially steal more than 100,000 votes? Is it possible, Jay, that maybe you just already accepted the entire argument of the other side? You think you can get out of it because the people in your little cloistered circle, your little bubble of wine moms and middle-aged gays who want to drink at lunch and talk politics on camera, you might think you have wormed your way out of it for those sorts of standard issue villagers, but you haven't wormed your way out of anything. You have just accepted the argument. Yes, the answer is yes. 80.9 million is already accepting the point that you don't know the outcome and no one was allowed to check. And all your nonsense, your lies about court cases and Trump judges and the results of audits you can't understand and can't discuss all of the excuses. None of it makes up for the fact that everyone knows that Joe Biden did not receive 81 million real lawful American votes. That includes you, Jay. I mean, John Heilman. And it includes the ostensibly grown man who is 50 years old and wearing a pearl necklace. He's like Milo Yiannopoulos without the style or panache or bombast or self-awareness. But how about that, my friends? Carrie Lake just used the 81 million real lawful American votes argument and drove two degenerate liberals insane with it. I really would like to see her add real lawful American into that framing, but I will still chalk this one up as a massive win and I guess do some sort of end zone dance or something. Okay, but as long as he is around, yes. everyone has to kiss the ring, everyone has yes. to espouse the fake election fraud or not else the they are, they're excommunicated. Not excommunicated, but you're not part of this movement. This is kind of the inner workings of this civil war between the Republican establishment and MAGA. And in there, you have litmus tests, okay? And one of the litmus tests is, is Trump. not just President Trump, but also particularly the stealing of the 2020 election. That is a fundamental tenet of this movement. By the way, they've made it all about Trump, okay? This movement is ascendant and is going to go on long after Donald Trump is only going to get more powerful and broader. Even if a Democrat was to win, there's no compromise here. What you're saying is even if Trump lost to Biden, there's no going back to the old no, Republican party. No, farther right than Trump. Farther right. President Trump is a moderate in our movement. You're going to pine in future years that you wished Donald Trump was around. Now, one of the problems with this production becomes really obvious later on in a scene where John Heilman is talking to the Democratic strategist James Carville outside of a pizza restaurant in Los Angeles. You can watch Carville's wine glass. And as their conversation goes on, the amount of wine in the wine glass goes up and down, even during moments that they make out to be sequential. It's kind of clear that they're just copying and pasting different reaction shots or different shots they pick up while the audio is playing over. And occasionally they'll actually have the camera on the faces while they are talking. But when they splice all this stuff in and have a show that is as highly edited as the circus is, it's very difficult to understand the actual tenor of the conversation. Like, I have to wonder if when Steve Bannon says it's not just about Trump, he mentions all of the other stolen elections that we know about in the country now, including, of course, Carrie Lakes. They don't understand why election fraud is a litmus test 
for the America First movement, for MAGA, and for, to some extent, the Republican Party now, to the extent that MAGA has taken over it. MAGA has not only taken over in the population, the Republican base, but also in the formal structure of the Republican Party. And that's part of why you can see all of them melting down about Ronna Romney McDaniel. Again, I don't care about Ronna Romney at all. I don't think she's a good person. I don't think she's good at her job. It doesn't matter to me at all what comes of Ronna Romney. I'm not wishing harm on her, of course, in any way. But if her career falls apart and she never works in politics again, I will not ever shed a tear. Despite that, it is nonetheless true that all of the Con Inc. supporters, the DeSantards, and then the whole bulwark, dispatch, National Review, Lincoln Project set, like Tim Miller, they all want to get things back to the old Republican Party. And it seems like they've decided the way to do that is to finally get rid of Ronna Romney because of this election result after failing to do so in January. It's always worth being suspicious when someone uses a current event to accomplish what they were not able to accomplish prior. It is part of their agenda, and now they are using this as the new rationale. They're going to pin the loss on Ronna Romney again, which means that it's also Trump's fault because Trump supported her a year ago, blah, blah, blah. All of that is irrelevant. It's just a matter of whether or not they're able to get the Republican establishment back in charge or whether the formal party structure is going to be dominated and controlled by MAGA. And so, yes, election fraud is the litmus test for that, because that is the most important issue in this country, aside from maybe our currency. And I would argue that this problem must be solved and maybe even must be solved first. It is not possible for anyone who understands that our elections are stolen to ever align themselves with someone who does not have the courage or the basic intellect to recognize that Joe Biden did not receive 81 million real lawful American votes. And that's why they won't simply say yes when the question is asked. Why didn't John Heilman just say, yeah, of course, I believe Joe Biden received 81 million real lawful American votes. In fact, I think it's been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, which is why I'm so concerned that so much of our country doesn't believe it. I mean, we have shown everybody all of the votes and allowed them to check the votes. It's not like we've just been going out with bullshit excuses, saying things about court decisions that we don't really understand, saying things about audits that we don't really understand. We went out and showed the American people transparently all 81 million of these votes. We allow them to get in and get that transparency for themselves so that they can look at any election and understand this election was done lawfully. It was checked and double checked. It's fully transparent. And that's how we know we have a legitimate winner. But he can't say that. He's never going to say that because that's not the state of the world. The whole point is that the question immediately opens the fundamental flaw in their position. And there is a fundamental flaw. They cannot recover their position because it is false. None of their arguments can get past that basic question that they're better off lying about. Because if they don't lie about that question, which is why they always just try to move away from it. But if they don't lie about that question and if they say, well, yeah, I, I don't know that Joe Biden got 81 million real lawful American votes, 
then it becomes obviously a grave moral failing on their part to have never checked and to shout people down about the truth of something that they can't even substantiate for themselves. Now, I want to get to some more Trump-related stuff, but there are some real highlights in the rest of this episode. That was the end of the Bannon section. But as I said, they tried to burnish Gretchen Whitmer's image and credentials in front of everyone. And a major part of that was repeating the central narrative about the Michigan governor kidnapping plot that is now more commonly referred to as the Fednapping because 12 out of the 18 men who were accused in this plot to kidnap and maybe kill Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer were either federal informants or directly connected to the feds. The entire thing was a setup, and the argument is now that they are still guilty because they went along with the setup, which means they really would have wanted to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer even if federal agents hadn't brought it up to them in the first place. Apparently, our political elites believe that the best argument for Gretchen Whitmer is her signing all sorts of legislation that no one wants and her being brave enough to face down the protesters at the Michigan State House because of her insane COVID policies and this whole fednapping thing. A total false flag hoax overseen by, at the time, Detroit field office director Stephen D'Antuono, who was then promoted to Washington, D.C., where he oversaw the January 6th insurrection. Later in the show, they did a bit on the totally useless, pointless, ridiculous, fake Republican primary debates. And there's one little gem in this short clip from Robert Costa of The Washington Post. No show. The most exciting event of the season. You can feel the excitement. Presidential debates are usually crackling with uh, drama and intensity, and this is like... Kind of a daughter. People who are not us need to start caring. I think there's more interest and maybe probably more press down, down the road. People who are not us need to start caring. They are fully aware of the fact that their viewpoints don't really represent anyone. And they seem to be fully aware of the fact that all of the drama they try to create and all of the attention they try to hold isn't working. None of it is working. Mark McKinnon walks into a mostly empty press room outside of the debate. That's where all of the reporters would be sitting there furiously typing into their computers and interacting with their ex-followers, formerly Twitter, while the debate progresses. No one cares. Robert Costa straight up says, People who are not us need to start caring. No, we don't. You are literally in the business of trying to get us to care, and you're not able to do it. Why? Because we know you're all full of shit. So we don't need to care about what you care about, and we're not going to care about what you care about. No one shares your perspective, guys. The funny thing is that people like them don't even really share this perspective. They just know they have to represent it to everyone else. Because the alternative is admitting that all of the bad people are right. A couple minutes later, there's this gem with MSNBC's Alex Wagner. She's got Jennifer Palmieri and Mark McKinnon with her. Do you want a little tequila? 
I know. Oh my I know. God. Aren't you proud though? Like I'm so proud. I'm proud yeah. Of all cheers. Of yeah. Cheers. 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 What a run. Now, it's delicious. I'm telling you. Do I wouldn't give you bad shit. So that's MSNBC's Alex Wagner, who was formerly of the circus, having a glass of tequila with Jennifer Palmieri and Mark McKinnon. I swear to you, nearly every scene in this show has these political wannabe elites drinking. Now, Alex Wagner pours from a bottle of Class Azul, which is a wonderful tequila and also a very expensive tequila. If you want to get a drink of Class Azul at a restaurant or bar in Los Angeles, let's say, you're probably looking at anywhere between 30 and $40 for that one drink. A bottle of Class Azul is usually somewhere between 150 and 200 bucks at a liquor store. And they know that anyone ordering it at a bar is willing to pay a premium. But Alex Wagner pours it into paper cups and then brags about how she would never give them anything but the good shit. These people just want to be influencers for the wealthy and powerful. They want to seem cool and impressive to the people better than them. That's how they advance within the party of false decorum. Alex Wagner pouring Klaas Azul into paper cups to share an after-show drink on a reality show with Hillary Clinton's pal and a former George W. Bush lackey is basically the equivalent of Mitt Romney rolling up his shirt sleeves or Glenn Youngkin's vest or Michael Dukakis's little helmet as he rode around in that tank or John Kerry's windsurfing. These people are so absurd and what they do is so transparent. They're trying to project an air of being better than you, but also just like you. We're really supposed to believe that nowhere in MSNBC studios could possibly be found an actual piece of glassware. Either that or Alex Wagner has a very expensive alcohol problem. Is she just plowing through so many bottles of Class Azul that she needs paper cups? She ran out of all the glasses. Oh, I just been drinking too many days in a row at work. Somebody find the paper cups. Mama's all out of glassware again. Here's Alex Wagner making an important point about the Republican debates. It really is all Donald Trump's fault. And she says, now famously, you're just the scum. easy answer. You're just scum. I understand the impulse. I understand the feeling of catharsis, but I also understand that that's the effect of Trump, right? Like right, the coarsening right. that people talk to each other like that yeah, when they're running for the highest office of the land. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. because Trump has told people and they believe it that in order to win in this thing, you got to be mean, you got to be ugly and you got to take the gloves off. And like that is a really profoundly disturbing like that's really true. For real, that was the takeaway from standard issue uniparty villagers. I actually saw this on X, formerly Twitter, over the course of the last few days. The you're just scum from Nikki Haley to Vivek. That was actually catharsis for these people. They were really happy with Nikki Haley doing that. They thought, or at least told one another that they thought, that Nikki Haley had the guts and the strength to take on someone mean and nasty like Donald Trump. Oh, she's willing to get down in the dirt and wrestle them. Nikki Haley's three-inch high heels are, are just ammunition. And no, still no, no one has figured out what that is supposed to mean. 
I mentioned earlier that there was a scene with John Heilman and Democrat strategist, old Clinton hack, James Carville. And here they are talking about how they get everything wrong all the time, but only because it's impossible for anyone to ever be right. I don't think he should run. That's my opinion. It is overwhelmingly clear. It would be clear to an amoeba that the public wants a different choice than Biden and Trump. Right. So like 75 percent of the people in the country don't want this race. You say we're in the grips of the doctrine of strategic certainty. Like we just say it's going to be Trump and it's going to be Biden. And everything we talk about in, in media, in the political class is all based on that certainty. It made me think about the whole period this era in the last eight years. It's like whenever people are absolutely certain about something, well, it's going to be Hillary versus Jeb Bush. Not. Joe Biden can't beat Donald Trump from his basement. He did. Donald Trump can never come back after the insurrection. False. If it's true that the lesson of the last eight years is that anytime people are absolutely certain about something, they turn out to be wrong. Does that not just make the case that somehow we're not going to have Biden and Trump? I'm not a very good predictor. All I can tell you is that the underlying fundamentals of American politics do not tell me there's certainty in predictions. They tell me that you don't fucking know, dude, and the panel on CNN or MSNBC or the columnist in the New York Times or, or the county chairman in, in, in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, he don't fucking know either. I just don't think this is pointing to a linear direction where we end up and we have Trump and Biden and it's a kind of rerun of 2020. I don't think that's going to happen. Right. See, some shit's going to come up and we're going to go, oh, God damn, why didn't I see this coming? So they don't think it's going to be Trump and Biden. Well, that's strange. It's definitely going to be Donald Trump. And now even the RNC is saying that they would not change and move away from Donald Trump if the voters do select Donald Trump. Even if one of these corrupt courts decides that Donald Trump really is a criminal. And of course, they're savvy enough to know that they're not just going to get rid of Donald Trump. So what are they going to do? Oh, they're going to get rid of Joe Biden. Or hey, maybe they just don't think that there will be an election. Maybe they think that people are going to realize between now and a year from now that Joe Biden didn't receive 81 million real lawful American votes. Now, to close out the show and close out the series, Mark McKinnon and John Heilman and Jennifer Palmieri all met on the balcony of a very tall building in New York to talk about how important it is, what they've accomplished over these last eight years, propagandizing standard issue villagers and wannabe elites on the uniparty left and the uniparty right. It's notable that in this scene, Mark McKinnon, the gay cowboy who is always dressed in Yellowstone chic is wearing a pair of leather work gloves on this balcony in New York City at the top of a very, very tall building on a normal fall day while filming a reality television show and, of course, about to drink some wine. Maybe they just assume that all of their viewers are wine moms who are probably half in the tank by the time The circus actually comes on to showtime every Sunday night and they'll get that sense at home that they're all just kind of hanging out and having a drink together. But otherwise, these people are all just raging alcoholics, 
or they've decided that politics and drinking go hand in hand, and that would be a very cool brand to show the public. But here's the final scene as we say farewell to the circus. Cats. Jay Palm. Oh, man. Look at that. They're fine. Man, this is, this is not a place to be if you have fear of heights. Yeah. You know me, I'm like, I'm a huge crier. You cry at the drop of a hat. I cry. Drop I, of no. hat. And I have like held it together this week. I've kind of like just shut it off. Adam Grass, cry again. Adam Jeremy, Grass, Sam, Adam Grass is a softy, it turns out. I love this show. Here it goes. <laughs> a little less dramatic than I'd hoped for. I... Last night, you know, I was in Carville. The thing ends and he left. And he sent me this text message. This is like the midnight Carville text, which was, we in a business we love and that other people hate, hope our chat can help people understand why this shit is important. I am scared, man. Barry. Are you scared? I'm scared, but I still, but I still believe. When, you know, when you were reading James' text and he said, we're in a business that we love and everybody else hate. I feel like this show made people kind of love it, though. That's like what I'm proud of with this show is that like we made people not just see like the terrible, the terrible part of it. We always collectively believe that this is a noble enterprise of democracy and voting and people who run for office, people who work in campaigns. Yeah, I still believe that most of the people do it for the right reason. I'm the prisoner of hope. This is the best and hardest thing I've ever done. I've never done anything harder. I've never done anything I love more. I've never done anything I've been prouder of. And so I just say about 2024, as we look forward to the year, say, let us go forth with clear eyes and no fear and a giant pack of whoop ass <laughs> for, for anybody who's not with us on Team Democracy. Oh my God, it was- That's it, it's a wrap. <laughs> Are you scared? Are you scared? They're all scared. And John Heilman suggests they all agree to approach the future with clear eyes and no fear and a giant pack of whoop ass for anyone who is not with them on Team Democracy. Cheers. Clink. End of season. End of series. They are all so proud of themselves. They have showed people what the good part of politics is. It's saying how bad and stupid half the country is while having drinks in locations that those people just aren't allowed in. And so it should be absolutely no surprise that none of these people are attached to reality at all. They have no clue what people in the country actually think and actually believe, and they're not even able to support their own viewpoints because there is no content to their beliefs. It's just a matter of how well they have memorized the slogans and whether or not they are able to come up with new slogans, not arguments, just things that they can say. And everybody knows that that's the right thing to say. Like elections are about looking forward, looking to the future because everyone cares about progress. And it's kind of funny for the smartest, best people on earth to be looking 
toward the future, aiming for progress and also be profoundly scared to the point where they're texting each other late at night. I'm scared. No, I'm scared. No, I'm the most scared. They actually believe that there is a cultural currency related to how scared you can tell others you are about the future of the country. They love to say it because it self-victimizes. It makes them seem like they are actually the small and the vulnerable and the marginalized fighting against great systems of power rather than representing the systems of power. And then they love to hear other people say, no, no, Jennifer. No, no, Mark. No, no, Jay. I mean, John. No, no, James Carville. No, no, pearl necklace guy. There's nothing to be scared of. We have a giant pack of whoop ass and we are going to bring it out one of these days. We've been, you know, using what's in that giant pack of whoop ass for the last eight and a half years. And it hasn't worked at all. But 2024, is going to be the year that that giant pack of whoop ass finally pays some dividends. I mean, we have no idea what's in the future. We're always terrible about predicting things, but trust us, we're going to get them this time. Now, before I wrap up a way too long episode to start the week, I would like to discuss briefly some of the things that they are very, very scared of. And don't worry, we'll have plenty of time this week to get to the potential government shutdown again on Friday. And all of the machinations that will be definitely employed to make sure that that doesn't happen. Despite all of the drama created around it and how much we were told that this new MAGA speaker was going to do the things that we wanted him to do. But let's get to Trump this weekend. They used the example of how Donald Trump was coarsening our politics and claiming that Donald Trump was actually going to make our politics violent. They were very concerned about Trump potentially deporting these millions and millions of illegal aliens. Now, in the ears of an average American who is concerned about the illegal immigration problem in this country, and especially people who have realized that we have an active slave trade happening at the southern border, that includes assault, murder, kidnapping, sexual assault, drug trafficking, weapons trafficking, human trafficking, sex trafficking, and child sex trafficking. Deporting all of those illegal aliens seems like the only sensible thing to do because the problem should have never been created in the first place. But to these people who don't realize that they're only talking to the dumbest four or five percent of the country at this point, they think they're just going to be able to call Donald Trump a Nazi and make it stick. Oh, Donald Trump wants to put them in deportation camps. Well, yes, they would have to be put somewhere before they are taken back across the border once they have been detained. They can't just be teleported. The claim that all of this represents Nazism doesn't mean all that much when the people claiming it are the ones who already have detention camps at the border that help facilitate the slave trade. They're just going to be passed right back through those points the way they came. It doesn't become a concentration camp because it's going in the other direction. And again, these were the same people who were celebrating the possibility of quarantine camps for the very deadly pandemic. And of course, they are the people who profit off foreign trade and shipping all our manufacturing to China so that all of our products are made by actual slaves in work camps. But it's important to understand that Donald Trump's camps are the bad ones because it's Donald Trump creating these camps. The New York Times had a big article 
on Saturday about exactly this. And this is from the A-team, Charlie Savage, Maggie Haberman, and Jonathan Swan. That is the New York Times A-team when it comes to anything regarding Donald Trump. Sweeping raids, giant camps, and mass deportations inside Trump's 2025 immigration plans. Former President Donald J. Trump is planning an extreme expansion of his first term crackdown on immigration if he returns to power in 2025, including preparing to round up undocumented people already in the United States on a vast scale and detain them in sprawling camps while they wait to be expelled. The plans would sharply restrict both legal and illegal immigration in a multitude of ways. Mr. Trump wants to revive his first term border policies, including banning entry by people from certain Muslim majority nations and reimposing a COVID-19 era policy of refusing asylum claims, though this time he would base that refusal on assertions that migrants carry other infectious diseases like tuberculosis. He plans to scour the country for unauthorized immigrants and deport people by the millions per year. To help speed mass deportations, Mr. Trump is preparing an enormous expansion of a form of removal that does not require due process hearings. To help Immigration and Customs Enforcement carry out sweeping raids, he plans to reassign other federal agents and deputize local police officers and National Guard soldiers voluntarily contributed by Republican-run states. To ease the strain on ICE detention facilities, Mr. Trump wants to build huge camps to detain people while their cases are processed and they await deportation flights. And to get around any refusal by Congress to appropriate the necessary funds, Mr. Trump would redirect money in the military budget as he did in his first term to spend more on a border wall than Congress had authorized. In a public reference to his plans, Mr. Trump told a crowd in Iowa in September, Following the Eisenhower model, we will carry out the largest domestic deportation operation in American history. The reference was to a 1954 campaign to round up and expel Mexican immigrants that was named for an ethnic slur, Operation Wetback. And for the record, that is not an ethnic slur at its roots. That is about people who illegally came into the country by crossing through the river, hence the wetback. And the article is rather long. It continues for quite a while. I would suggest that if you want to read it, you can simply find it in the information stream. T.me slash very reasonable on Telegram. I have the archived version linked there, and that will allow you to bypass the New York Times paywall. So once again, we have an agenda item. Something needs to be done about illegal immigration. And we have a full-fledged, fully fleshed out, Donald Trump plan on how to accomplish this. We have something the American people want, and we have a plan to get it done. And because there is no rational argument about why this shouldn't be done, that doesn't include forgiving the fact that all of these people are here illegally. They simply try to compare Donald Trump to racists and Nazis. And if you were to check out Tim Miller's Twitter, I mean, X, feed today, you would have posts about exactly that, including one from Liz Cheney, the daughter of Dick Cheney, talking about how Donald Trump is going to be the concentration camp guy, ignoring the fact that she and her father are warmongers of historic proportion. So the claim means virtually nothing coming from these people. 
They use it as an insult, but no one really takes it that way. So it's ineffective there as well. But the only place that it's useful, and this is something that we will have to be continually careful about as we enter this next phase, is something that I discussed at length in an essay entitled The Sides of History. What they are doing here is trying to create a narrative that in 10 years or 20 years or 50 years or 100 years, people will look back on and believe to be the truth of this era. Because while we observe all of this as an obvious hate movement and an outgrowth, including the actual ideological and bloodline descendants of the people who did all of this stuff a hundred years ago and continuing forward from there, we can see this as a hate movement of which we are the targets and Donald Trump is the target that's been ongoing for the last eight years. We see some of that actually in decline and imagine that we will defeat this and it'll just go away. They take the opposite view. They see this and want to paint this for the public and for the future as the continued rise of Donald Trump into the leader of a hate movement that will be doing things like rounding up these brown people and putting them in camps. That's how they want to portray this. They want to pull off the old switcheroo where they reverse the sides on all of this. They are no longer the purveyors of this hate movement, the members of this hate movement. They are actually the victims of the hate movement in their telling and retelling as this progresses from their perspective over the next few decades. Donald Trump will become Hitler and he's in the process of doing that now. That is what they are trying to show the public, and they are going to keep hammering on this. Now, if you're alive in this present day, you'll know how ridiculous that is. I mean, unless you're the sort of person who can't stop watching the circus, but in 30 years or 50 years or 70 years, people are going to believe what they've been taught in school and at universities and what they read in the history books. And we can naturally assume that the only acceptable books for them to read, to learn about history, will be the ones that the regime passes down. This is how they create a false reality in the moment, which will then become a false history for future generations. You can imagine a scenario where we all lose, and the Liz Cheney's, and the George W. Bush's, and this global communist regime actually win, and all of a sudden, they're the heroes of this moment. They're the people without any power who decide to take on the moment and actually confront Donald Trump in this whole awful movement. That is how they will portray us in the future if they win. And so we're going to have to be cognizant of that and fight against that impression and make sure that we are setting down a real legitimate account of what is happening in the world right now and why. Because it's not like the conservative establishment, this uniparty right, is somehow going to become America's allies. They exist to serve the regime. They will help create the false reality right now and the false history for the future. But the immigration issue and the deportations are not the only thing that has them scared. Tim Miller mentioned Donald Trump going after the administrative state and then tried to reframe that entire discussion. Donald Trump doesn't want to go after the administrative state to pursue Donald Trump's enemies. Donald Trump wants to bring down the administrative state, which is far, far larger than just Trump's enemies. 
These are the enemies of the American people, the unelected federal bureaucracy that sets all the rules and the regulations and governs everything. That's got virtually nothing to do with Donald Trump's particular political enemies. And by the way, we talked about zero accountability on Friday. How much accountability do unfireable federal employees who never have to face even the threat of an election possibly have? The answer is zero accountability. And they're not even out in the public eye like our politicians are. Now we have court cases that have made a difference, West Virginia versus EPA being one of them. And we've had plenty of reporting about Donald Trump using Schedule F to remove a bunch of that unaccountable federal workforce, that federal bureaucracy. And all of that has these people very scared because that changes the system they have worked so hard to put in place and cement and make it so that that system can never be broken down. Well, that process is about to begin. And when that happens, a big chunk of the money laundering dries up. It gets harder to pull off political favors. And a lot of that abuse goes away. This is Axios this morning, Jim Vandehei and Mike Allen, who are their A-team. Behind the curtain, Trump allies pre-screen loyalists for unprecedented power grab. Oh, yes, it's just a power grab. Former President Trump's allies are pre-screening the ideologies of thousands of potential foot soldiers as part of an unprecedented operation to centralize and expand his power at every level of the U.S. government if he wins in 2024. Officials involved in the effort tell Axios. Hundreds of people are spending tens of millions of dollars to install a pre-vetted pro-Trump army of up to 54,000 loyalists across government to rip off the restraints imposed on the previous 46 presidents. That's not what he's doing. And by the way, the federal workforce is like 3 million people. He's only going after 54,000. They should be pretty happy. The screening for ready-to-serve loyalists has already begun driven in part by artificial intelligence from tech giant Oracle contracted for the project. That is very interesting because there are some very compelling theories about Larry Ellison's role in all of this Trump operation, but we certainly can't get into that here and now. Social media histories are already being plumbed. They act like this stuff is strange or unique to Trump. These people literally used to go through the social media histories of anyone who they wanted to destroy, find a post or a reply or a comment or a picture that would provide the fodder and then destroy someone's life based on their social media history. When Trump took office in 2017, he included many conventional Republicans in his cabinet and key positions. Those officials often curtailed his behavior and power and Axios frames that as a good thing. And so does the political establishment. What they were doing was subverting and undermining a duly elected American president. That should be seen as conspiring against the nation, not doing everyone a favor. Trump himself spends little time plotting governing plans, but he is well aware of a highly coordinated campaign to be ready to jam government offices with loyalists willing to stretch traditional boundaries. You see, Trump is clueless. He doesn't know what's going on. He's not really running things. He just knows that he wants to punish all these people. So he hires some minions, some of his powerful minions, his most evil people like that bad Stephen Miller, and he has them go do all his dirty work. 
Just destroy those people however you can, Stephen Miller. You have my full permission. We really have to pretend that that is how Donald Trump operates. It's not what someone like uh, Hillary Clinton with a real body count actually does. If Trump were to win, thousands of Trump first loyalists would be ready for legal, judicial, defense, regulatory and domestic policy jobs. His inner circle plans to purge anyone viewed as hostile to the hard edged authoritarian sounding plans he calls Agenda 47. His plans are all authoritarian sounding if you only read the descriptions of them by members of the state propaganda media who are trying to paint Trump as an authoritarian. It is very twisted, circular logic. They won't make the argument that his plans are actually authoritarian because then they would have to engage counterpoints. So instead, they just repeat the slogan that everybody knows these are authoritarian sounding plans. You see, we can make these plans sound like what the history books say about Nazi Germany. Therefore, this is Nazi Germany. Therefore, Donald Trump is a Nazi. In fact, Hitler and all of these plans are very, very dangerous, even though he is just cleaning out an unelected bureaucracy, something that the American people want him to do. I mean, either we respect democracy or we don't. And again, as I mentioned in the episode about populism a couple of weeks back, it's quite clear that they don't care about what the people actually want, but they still pretend to. They just also believe that if people want the wrong thing, it's because bad people made them want that. And because it's not really them wanting that, it's just them making a mistake by wanting that. They then have the right to make sure that people have no power to accomplish any of it. Now, this article is also rather long, so I will skip down to the end. Here's what the early days of a second Trump presidency would look like based on his words and our conversations with Trump insiders. One, his top obsession will be the Justice Department, the FBI, and the intelligence community, all of which he thinks conspired to investigate him, thwart him, screw him. He's been very clear that he's willing to unleash these agencies against political enemies. Actually, what's clear is that all of that has already happened in the direction of Donald Trump and all of his supporters. The illegitimate Biden administration has already unleashed those agencies against the American public. And there is absolutely no doubt that those agencies were unleashed against Donald Trump and did try to subvert him. The Russia hoax, the Ukraine impeachment hoax, the letter from 51 former intelligence officials saying that Hunter's laptop may indeed be Russian disinformation. Number two, the next priority will be the Department of Homeland Security and the border with plans to erect sprawling detention camps, scour the country for unauthorized immigrants and deport people by the millions per year. The New York Times reports we're told Trump's top criterion for immigration officials will be whoever promises to be most aggressive. Trump has told allies he's confident the Supreme Court will back his most draconian moves. And of course, he's right about that last part. He knows exactly what he's going to do. And Axios is simply framing the other part to make Trump look very angry, very stupid, and ultimately very evil when all of this actually goes down. Number three, as first reported by Jonathan Swan for Axios last year, that's the same Jonathan Swan who's now on the A-team at the New York Times. A key tool for Trump's revenge term would be the use of Schedule F personnel powers to wipe out employment protections for tens of thousands of civil servants across the federal government. 
Trump allies want a deep and wide purge of the professional staff that often serves across new administrations. So that is the permanent political class in the federal bureaucracy in Washington. These people are unelected and it has been very difficult to fire them. Trump has a way around that and is finally going to do it. Number four, officials close to the Pentagon tell us they're worried about a plan articulated by former Trump official Russ Vaught in the Heritage document to direct the National Security Council to, quote, rigorously review all general and flag officer promotions to prioritize the core roles and responsibilities of the military over social engineering and non-defense related matters, including climate change, critical race theory and manufactured extremism. Indeed, Trump allies see obstacles to remove at every level of every agency. And so did the American people. Not that any of these wannabe elite standard issue villager friends of the circus understand that at all. The bottom line, this Trump allied machine has the most power over the formation of a potential future government of any group in U.S. history. Trump, if elected, will leverage it to do things with the government that none of us has seen in our lifetime. Now, what are they saying there? They're saying that the man who opposes the regime is singular in his efforts to actually remove the regime from their entrenchment in the American government. Here is that same Russ Vaught from this morning on War Room. I think what's catching them so off guard and what they're unprepared for is that they have never had a transition effort or preparation that is intent on stating what needs to be done clearly and on the record and proudly and defending it before any elections ever occurred. And you have to do that when you change paradigms, governing paradigms, because even if you have the right people, they come into these departments and they think that they come into the Department of Justice and they think they're supposed to be separated from the White House. And these institutions are trying to shape their behavior the best of conservatives sometimes. And what we're saying is we're going to plant the flags now. We're going to say in the instance of federal spending that presidents had the ability to impound funds for 200 years until a, a bad law got passed that we think is unconstitutional under President Nixon. And, and we want to go back in a different direction. And many of those settlements that came out of the Nixon world, the Nixon uh, time period where the executive branch was at its lowest point, is how official Washington, D.C. wants to have govern them for the rest of, of, of eternity. And unfortunately, we need radical constitutionalism. We need to go back to how separation of powers was meant to work, state it, defend it, and then hopefully give it to people who are willing to do it. So when you watch the series finale of The Circus and when you hear the language used in these articles and the subject matter, you kind of get the distinct impression that all of these people know that Trump is going to be back. And as mentioned in that Axios article, he's not coming in with a bunch of suggestions from the establishment about who should fill all these roles and just going along with what the establishment says. This time, there is a plan. They are creating an organization so that they can replace the old organization with the new organization and have things running an entirely different way. That is real change that is providing real Americans real hope. And that's what they're also scared of. And before we depart today, I just want to leave you with one final dose of elite panic 
this one coming from a voice we haven't heard on this show, at least in quite a while, that of Jen Psaki, former press secretary of the illegitimate president, where she expresses her own fears. And yet the hand wringing and cocktail party speculation about an alternative to Joe Biden is continuing, will continue. Guess what? Joe Biden isn't perfect. No candidate is, by the way. But we have to understand what the alternative is here. If elected to a second term, Donald Trump would prosecute anyone he deems an enemy, unleash troops on protesters, and essentially unravel the rule of law as we know it. And this time, he plans to line his administration with people who will actually help him do it. But sure, Joe Biden is three years older and occasionally trips over things. Look, there's a lot to be concerned about right now when it comes to a second Trump term. The speeches are getting much more disturbing and much more unhinged, and we should all hear it that way. Biden 2024, because Trump's still the scary one. Good luck convincing 81 million real lawful American voters of that. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. 
If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofi. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!